Hello, everybody. Uh, it's good to see you. It's good to be here. Um, it, it truly is good to be, be here. I think about you a lot. Uh, I actually think about you a lot, lot. It's uh, kind of weird. Um, the, the, the truth kind of is that, you know, I came here to Christ's community at the age of 23. And so my whole, like, adult, you know, everything has happened here, here at our church. And I grew up here. Like, that's how I feel. And, you know, I had kids here. My kids are growing here, and whenever I see you as a congregation, I don't see you as a congregation. I, I see you as the insurance guy who is you know, always helping me out. I see you as the person who cleans my teeth. Um, I see you as um, the people who cut my hair, as the person who taught me to bow hunt, takes me hike. I mean, like, Everything that I feel like I've experienced uh, it, it has happened here at Christ Community. And um, you all are my family. Like, your kids play with my kids. I've seen um, um, kids that were born here. They're now in high school. I've you know, s- seen the, the kindergarten class that I taught in Tiny Tots. They have graduated now. And it's just this, like, I am so thankful for who you are. Uh, whenever I talk to um, people about Christ community, I say that Christ community, like the essence of who they are is that they are the people who show up. Um, Christ community shows up in the fantastic times and the hard times and the happy things and the things that aren't explained that that, that properly, you know, like you show up, you showed up in, in Project Beyond and Project Beyond Catalyst and some other that happened, and you showed up at, uh, you know, for the city, and I mean, your heartbeat shows up, like, kind of as I speak, there's people, there's people in Peru, Guatemala, Burma, Bangkok, I mean, like, Christ community is everywhere, and I'm so thankful to be a part of it. Um, the thing that's so cool is that, um, that I, I fully believe that who you are as people is, is pretty awesome. However, um, who you are and the things that you do, it's inspired by the truth that you, you truly, at the essence of who you are, you believe at your core, you know, in the gospel. Like, you are actually people who say, I believe in the gospel, and because of that, I'm different. I'm going to act different. We're going to do things different. This church is profound, and it's different, and you experience that. And so if I asked you, um, just right off the bat, if I said, you know, tell me a verse in the Bible um, that defines the gospel, I bet you the odds are, like 75% of the people would say probably it would be John 3.16, right? John 3.16 kind of like embodies the, the harpy of the gospel and the harpy of change and salvation and the heart of God. In John 3.16, you find it on, on billboards. You know, it was probably the first Bible verse that you ever memorized. Possibly it was the only Bible verse you ever <laughs> And I said, that's cool, you know, that's cool. Um, however, for me, someone who is obsessed with the Bible, and I think at times it's unhealthy, um, someone who is obsessed with the Bible and context and the beauty of 
God and the people who had their hands all over the scripture. I am excited today to talk about John 3.16, but I don't actually want to talk about it at all. The thing we're going to talk about is the context of John 3.16 and and the things that hold it to give it the power and the beauty that it has had for all of us, that has inspired us. Because a bunch of us can say off the top of our head, John 3.16, but I bet you if I said, tell me what what is John 3, 13, 14, or 15? The odds are that you guys don't have a clue. How can I say that? Because personally, I didn't have a clue either before I started preparing this. And so if I said, tell me what John 3, 13 is, what is John 3, 14, what is John 3, 15? The odds are, I don't know, but John 3, 16 is this, and it's awesome. But context in the Bible is important because everything in the Bible is important. It's painstakingly put together and inscribed, especially the book of John. I have a crush on the book of John. He is a, he's just deep poetically. His his idea of Torah and how he informs uses it, um, his theology, his philosophy, he is insanely brilliant. And so whenever you approach the book of John, context speaks loud. And John is brilliant. I can almost like picture him, you know, doing this, and he's just like so proud of how it's coming together so well, you know. Um, so our church is you know, in a sermon series called Tattered Covers. The goal of Tattered Covers is simply to tell stories that are from the Old Testament that's going to inspire the place that you are today. Today. So because I believe that the stories of the Old Testament, the truth of them are that they have happened, that they are happening, and they are going to happen. That that, that there is truth all over them, that as I tell the story, if we engage the story properly, that it isn't telling the stories of the Old Testament at all. It's telling the stories of our congregation. And that's the goal. So today, our goal is to to talk about the context of John 3.16, but it's going to bring us back a ton in the Old Testament. Here's the deal. I'm going to say this ahead of time. There is a ton of things that I'm going to be talking about today. There's a ton of context. There's a lot of stories. There's a bunch of things that aren't going to connect until the very end, right? Until the very end. So throughout this whole thing, it's going to be like, I don't think I understand this. I don't know what he's talking about. I know. That's cool. Just hang in there. In the end, the goal is at the end, you go, Oh, right? Because that's what happens when you approach the gospel properly. Oh, it should create that sound every time. Oh, right? Um, so the passage for today is John 3, 13, 14, and 15. Here it is. Pop it up. And so as a congregation, here we go. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. 
All right, so that is the passage that comes before John 3.16. And so if you actually held John 3.16 up and you compared it to John 3.13, 14, and 15, it's very similar, but it's the opposite, right? It's, this, it's very similar. It has the same pattern. It talks about Christ. It talks about his sacrifice, but it says very different things. So for instance, in John 3.14, it calls Jesus the son of man. In John 3.16, it calls Jesus the son of God. So, so there are two different things that are being said here. He's the son of man here, and he's the son of God here. The, how can that be? You know, so, so is he the son of God, or is he the son of Man, right? And so if you're thinking Hebrew, the answer is yes, right? So is he the son of man? Is he the son of God? Absolutely. He has to be both these things. And then, then he compares the crucifixion and the sacrifice to something that happened back during the Exodus story. Um, the time that, that, that they're in the desert, they get bit by venomous snakes, and then they have to put a bronze snake on a pole and hold it up. Who has ever heard that story before? But it's the context that John 3.16 is set for, right? And so today I want to talk about who is the son of man? How did he become the son of man? Who cares if he's the son of man? And then we're going to talk about snakes, right? It's going to be a good day. And then we'll go, at the end, we'll go, yes, oh, right? And so the gospel of John, first of all, it's brilliant. It's poetic. It's everything is intentional. How does the gospel of John begin? In the beginning, intentionally, in the beginning, he is saying the same vocabulary of how the book of Genesis begins. John is obsessed with the book of Genesis. And so, so our story today is going to begin in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, the same place that the gospel of John is beginning, in the beginning. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the whole story begins. And so God creates everything, the trees, the animals, the oceans, the skies, the air. It's there. God spoke it into being, and it is good, and it is brilliant, and it is beautiful, and God calls it good. You are good. And so after he's created everything, he puts his hands you know, in the dirt of the, or the earth, and it, he forms this, this human shape. And then he takes his mouth and he breathes into the dirt, and the dirt becomes alive. And when the dirt comes alive in this human form, he calls it something. He calls it Adama, right? This is Adama. And what Adama is, it is this complex Hebraic term. All Hebraic terms are complex. Um, that is something like, this is the dirt that breathes. This is mankind. This is the, the imprint, the image of God created by. Um, this, is, uh, this is the servant keeper, the gardener, the it's all in Adama. We often just simplify and say, it's Adam, right? It's Adam. So, so God you know, creates this form, you know, the dirt breathes and says, hey, Adam, 
No, it's bigger than that. The image of, of Adam is bigger than that. This is the imprint of God. And God gives him the authority of the imprint of God. And so in that authority is to take care and oversee everything. That's a big responsibility. And then in the overseeing and the, and the taking care of, God gives him the authority to name everything. And so I grew up in Sunday school and I always had that picture of there's this, this guy on a hill that doesn't have clothes and he's like, hippopotamus, giraffe, that's an anaconda, you know, like that's cool. But the, the, the Hebrew people don't see it like that because the responsibility of giving something a name is to have the ownership, the entitlement, but then the responsibility to understand fully what that thing is. And so by telling you, Adam, your responsibility is to take care of all of this and give it a name. That is a responsibility for an eternity. That is to go out and so everything you see, understand it fully. And then after you understand it, call it by what it is. But you need to know what it is before you call it. And so then whenever man gives whatever name it is, it's coming from full understanding. And then whenever a name is given, given, the, the thing that is being named feels a bond between that who is naming. Do you follow me? There's a relationship there, the you know me. The Hebrew people believe that Adam is like the king of the earth. It's wherever he goes, things respond to him. This is very different than how I grew up in Sunday school. Like he's this hippie guy, like everything's good. God, you're awesome, you know, and he's clueless, you know, and I, I don't see that at all. Like he is this, he is a powerful imprint of God with the authority, you know, to take care of all things and to understand them and to give them a name, and they respond to him. Perfect, beautiful. The Hebrew people will say that that Adama, he is the gardener. They call him the gardener. And this is very important. They call him all throughout time, the gardener. They actually don't say Adama. They call him the gardener. And the responsibility of the gardener is to name Okay, important things. So you have a Dama who's in the garden. Things are phenomenal. He and God are talking face to face all the time. They are tight, okay? Like things are great. And so and then God comes to this conclusion, even though things seem to be great, they actually aren't that great. This is not good. Good. He actually says, so it is not good for man to be alone, which personally I don't understand at all because I think it's fun to be alone and by myself. And then you think about being in the garden, especially because he had all this power, authority, and purpose, and him and God hang out all the time, and they have this perfect thing happening, and God says, it isn't enough. I can't be it for you. 
which is perplexing to me because I always believed that, that if God and I are perfect together, if he and I have this tight thing, then that is enough. Who cares about everybody else? God says, you need other people. And so God creates a partner for Adam and calls her Eve. Together, Adam and Eve have offspring, and the offspring of Adam and Eve are the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, correct? Just, just follow. And the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve are called the sons of Adam. Adam is translated into English as man. The sons and daughters, the offsprings of Adam and Eve, who is everybody, are the sons and daughters of Adam, who are the sons and daughters of man. This is where the term sons of man comes from. But that isn't what this passage says. It says that Jesus is the son of man. And that's important to draw a distinction because every father can have only one who has the imprint, the inheritance, the blessing and the curse. The only son, kind of even though they have plenty of more to come. And so, and so in Hebrew theology, everyone has you know, a son who gets the imprint, the, the impression, the blessing, the identity whenever the father passes on. And so it isn't like this idea of, you know, I am the son of God or I am the son of you know, Adam. It's more of a, he is of God. He is of Adam that he takes on full identity, full impression. I am do you know what I mean? Can you follow that for a bit? So whenever in this passage, it talks about the son of man, he's taken on full identity of Adama. It's huge, okay? So let's hit the time out here. That's a lot of stuff. Okay, let's just put that whole thing over here and it'll hang out for a bit. Okay, let's pop up the passage again. Okay, so as a congregation, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Snakes. Okay, so I'm excited to talk about this part because it's fun. Okay, so, so the, the part about the the Thanks are super important, but a bunch of us haven't ever really heard the story of, of how it happened and, and the importance of it, but it comes from the, the Exodus story, and I'm so all about the Exodus story. So here it is. It's going to be, be in full. So here we go. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. They said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There isn't any bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. 
The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Phenomenal, right? Who can approach this passage and say, sounds good to me? No, don't do that. You're supposed to go, man, that's messed up. You know, like snakes and why? And I thought God was a God of grace. What's up? Love it. So these people just came from slavery in Egypt and Pharaoh, and they're in the desert and there's no food, there's no water, but God has been sustaining them. And they start complaining, why did you bring us out of Egypt to be here? And there's, I don't know why I'm crying, it's weird. Um, so there's no food, there's no water, and the things you give us is detestable. Like, we don't like it. Why? And then God sends snakes, venomous snakes that bite his children and kill them. And then they say, whoa, we're sorry. We don't want to have these here. Tell God to take them away. And so Moses goes to God and God tells Moses, get a pole and create a serpent made of bronze and hold it up. Then whenever a snake bites someone, have them stare at it. <laughs> First of all, God doesn't take the snakes away. He creates this pole that after they get bit, they stare at as if the snakes are stained. <laughs> like, it's yours. These are your pets now. The snakes are stained. They will bite you. But look at that. But why snakes? Like, snakes are freaky. Especially if they're venomous. Like, they are like these cobra, you know, you know? Snakes are the image and always have been the image and continue to be the image of Egypt. Just how it is. Like, think about the, the, the pharaoh. Think about the hieroglyphs. Think about every image that, 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 that Egypt stamps on something. It's the image of the cobra. Think about the Pharaoh and who Pharaoh is, the headdress of Pharaoh, the snake. And the headdress of Pharaoh and who Pharaoh is is very, very important to this story because Pharaoh is someone who thinks he's God. Pharaoh thinks he's God. He, he has his kingdom. He has his servants. He has his crops and his storehouses. He has everything in control. And everyone thinks he has everything in control. And he is God. And everyone serves him. This is Pharaoh. So whenever the Israelites complain about being apart from Egypt, why have you brought us out of Egypt? Why are you doing this? You're not taking care of us. God says, all right, I'll bring it to you. I will send the, sn the snakes to you and the snakes are going to bite and they're going to continue to bite because this is deep, deep, beautiful poetry. <laughs> the snake always bites, and when it bites, you 
die. And when it bites, you die, but can you be saved from the bite of the cobra? And so they created this pole and they hang this bronze snake on it. And so every time they get bite, they get bit and they can't breathe and they're swelling up. They look up at this pole and they are healed. Why? Because that sounds stupid to me. Why is that it? Because it's all about teshuva. Teshuva. All the prophets say teshuva, teshuva, teshuva. Teshuva is repent, 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 which actually means remember, 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 remember. When all the prophets are like, repent, repent, repent. They're also saying, remember, remember, remember. What are they trying to remember? They're not trying to remember the bronze pole. They're seeing beyond the pole, beyond Pharaoh, beyond to the thing that John, the author of the gospel of John, is trying to help everyone who forgot the garden to remember remember the snake because the snake is at the essence of every sin that you and I have. It's at the core. It's at the root. The Pharaoh is always there. This, this imprint of we believe that we're able to be God. And it began with the book of Genesis chapter two, talking about the serpent is the most crafty of all the other animals. I love that description. It is the most crafty of all the other animals. And so Adam and Eve, they are doing well for themselves. They're in the place that they were created to be. How Many of us here are in the place that you were created to be. But they, were, they, they are in this place that they were created to be, and they are thriving, and, and the earth responds to them. They are the imprint of God. And then they find themselves by this tree that God told them to stay away from. They find themselves by this tree that God says, don't touch it. And they find themselves by this tree that has a serpent on it, hanging on it. There's a serpent on a tree. There's a serpent on a pole. Get it? Poetry. Let's try it together. So, so there's a serpent on a tree, and, and the serpent begins to talk to Eve, and he says, did God truly say that if you eat of the fruit of this tree that she will surely die? And she says, well, of course he did. That's what he said, that if we eat this fruit, we will die. And the serpent, who is brilliant, he says, that is not true. In fact, here's what will happen. If you eat this fruit, then you, your eyes will become open. And, and then you will know the d difference between good and e evil and become just as God is. You see, at the core of every human sin is that desire to be as God is. Sure, there was a sin, they ate from the fruit and, and, uh, and God said, do not, but it goes deeper than that. There was this, the image of the serpent is always saying, you can be just like God. You can be just like God. You can have control. You can know all things. You can know past, present, and future. You can have the best insurance policy ever. You can build your kingdom. You can have people serving. You know what I'm saying? This started here, the image of the serpent. The image of the serpent pops up all throughout the Bible as this idea of human identity. Idolatry. It's that, that at the core of our hearts, we are trying to be our own gods. We are trying to be Pharaoh. 
And so we have heard this story and how it ends, that they, that they eat of the fruit, their eyes are open, and God says, no. And God takes them from the place that they were supposed to be, the place that, that they were born and created to be, and he puts them outside of it. And then the story of the Bible continues on. It doesn't ever tell us how Adam and Eve, <laughs> it doesn't tell us how Adam and Eve felt. It doesn't tell us the stories that they told. It doesn't tell us about the separation anxiety that they had. But if I was them, I would be a complainer. Because I am a complainer. I am them. And here's how it is. I mean, like they had been in this place that everything around them was created for them. It's like, this is yours and you belong here. And they're put in a place they do not belong. And then, I mean, I just pictured the campfires and them telling the stories of how things had been back in the garden. Back in the garden, I did this. Back in the garden, I talked to God like this. Back in the garden, back in the garden, back in the garden. And they passed those stories down to their kids who passed those stories down to their kids back in the garden, back in the garden, back in the garden. And there's this imprint of the garden on our soul. How can I say that and be absolutely sure that there is? Because everyone in here has said something kind of like, this isn't how it's supposed to be or this isn't right, or this isn't how it's intended to be, or that's injustice, or every one of us gets up day after day after day. Why? Because we believe that things are getting better. Tomorrow will be better than today. Tomorrow it'll be better for my kids. And they'll tell that to my kids, and we will try, and we'll create, and we'll strive, and things are getting better. They don't get better. This is the human story. We're progressively going forward to something that we believe in that has no evidence of being. Why? Because Eden is like imprinted on our heart. How can you say this isn't how it's supposed to be? Because you know this is not how it's supposed to be. How do you know that? You don't know that. You do know that. <laughs> you haven't forgotten. And so for all of us who experience pain, <laughs> all of us who cry out, this is not the way it's supposed to be. You're right. That's real. That call you feel forward is real. You see, the Bible begins begins in Eden and it ends in Eden. And the story of the sons of Adama <laughs> are the whole thing in between. It's our story of going home. And if you have not forgotten the garden, praise God. But the gospel of John is for people who have forgotten the garden, who have forgotten home, forgotten how come they get up every day, forgotten their purpose. It's for us. John tries really, really, really hard to draw in the garden to everything he talks about. He, his gospel, it begins in the beginning. It has the same iambic pentameter as the book of Genesis has. You can say it at the same heartbeat. And for the first whole chapter is Genesis chapter one. It's brilliant. 
try it at home, uh, but don't do it in front of people. It's weird. And so, and so then he often, instead of calling Jesus the son of God, he will go back and forth all the time saying the son of man, son of man, son of man. In Hebrew, son of Adama, son of Adama, son of Adama, son of Adama. He's trying to draw in these core. Don't forget about home. Don't forget about home. Do you dream of home? Do you fantasize about home? Do you cry out? This is not how it's supposed to be. Do you build campfires and tell the story? And then he does these beautiful things around the crucifixion of Christ that no one else who tells the account of the crucifixion ever does. For example, whenever John talks about the place that Jesus is is buried, he says this right here. At the place Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb. Help me out here. In which no one had ever been laid. So as people die today, it's like, that's cool, there was a garden. For a Hebrew person, seeing this passage, there was a garden. This is the only time garden pops up anywhere in the Bible. There was a garden and there was a tomb that no one had ever been in before. <laughs> like, do you see that? Like, that's just crazy. And be, be, because Adam came out of it and Jesus is going into it right? Adam came out of it. Jesus goes into it. And then he was buried the day before the Sabbath, right? That's the end. It is finished. And then the story goes on on the first day. Um, his friends come to, to find him on the first day, right? On the first day, on the first day of, and the first day of the but if a Hebrew person says that, the first day of creation. And so on the first day, they come and the tomb is empty and they panic and they turn around and then here's the thing that happens. Okay, everybody. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out, rabbi. Think like a Jew. So here's Mary, the tomb is empty. And she turns around and she sees this person that she does not know. And, she, it, it, and in the story, it says, she thought it was the gardener. Here's the thing. It was the gardener. That's the point. That's, that, that, this is the pinnacle of the gospel of John. Like he is like building up to all these stories in Genesis. He is the gardener. He is the new Adama. And she mistook him for the gardener, but doesn't know it. And so she confronts him and says, if you have taken the body away, you know, just point it out so I can go get it back. How does he respond to her? He doesn't go, Mary, it's me, it's Jesus. I came back from the dead. It's been three days. I prophesied about it. I conquered death. I'm awesome. Believe in me. You'll have eternal life. This is what it's all about. He doesn't do that. He does this, Mary. And then she goes, Rabbi, 
she knew him by him calling her name. Tell me the identity of who the gardener is. He's the namer. In this passage, the only thing he does is say her name and her eyes are opened because he named her. Why is this important? Because this is the context that John holds up and puts John 3.16 right in the center of it. If you have forgotten home, if you are caught up in this identity of you are the sons and daughters of, of, of Adam, you know, if you bear the curse and the str- str- struggle, it's simply untrue. Because through this sacrifice, you are not the sons of Adam anymore. You are the sons of God. You see, the son of Adam went into the grave that no one has ever been in before. And who came out of it is the son of God. And so if you are, you are the sons and daughters of God who bear the inheritance, the imprint, the image from the new Adama. Stop pretending you are still bound by the curse. Adam is dead. It's simply untrue. And so in this, he says, John 3.16, which is the simplest, most profound verse ever in this context. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Wow. Please pray with me. Oh God, we thank you for our church and for our family, that we are a community who grows together, who goes through hard times together, that are journeying together, and we're going home. God, we thank you that that we have the privilege and the honor to being a part of the story that you have created for us. A story that brings us to a table that has bread and a cup. And this bread is symbolic of your body that is symbolic of hope, that is symbolic of the path home. And the cup that is symbolic of your blood, that's symbolic of the thing that covers and pays for our sins, that kicked us out of the garden. God, God, we thank you for the story that you have created inside of your own body, that as you broke it, you affirm that all the anxieties that we feel and the cries that we say, this is not how it's meant to be, that you say, that's real that our pains and our anxieties, they're real. And that home is real. And the voice that calls to us is real. God, we thank you that you are real and that we are going somewhere and that you invite us to this table to partake in the sacrifice, to proclaim, to celebrate (laughs) that the kingdom of God is crashing into earth, making all things brand new. So, Christ, come here. I'm going to going to invite you all to st- st- stand up. And there um, has been been a.
table that's been prepared for you. There is bread, there is a cup. These are the invitation to come partake in the journey that God has put before you. It is a journey that goes home, the place that you always knew is. And it's through the sacrifice of Christ, his body broken, put inside a grave that no one has ever been and brought back to life on the third day. And so are you. So there has been a table that's been prepared for you.